Welcome to episode 74 of Coffee Pods and Wads, sponsored by Rain Body Fuel, the ultimate fitness focus drink to support performance, and also kindly sponsored by Ollie Clothing, a brand dedicated to helping you in your pursuit of success. They make products that support all active endeavors and create content that adds clarity and convenience to the self development process. Uh, there's a show Patreon at patreon.com forward slash coffee pods and wads or through the link on um, Instagram either. There's lots of bonus content there and discounts on merchandise. Um, there's also loads of video content up on YouTube. Um, well, like relatively speaking, I mean, other accounts have way more, but you know, give me a chance. Um, you can go and subscribe if you like, uh, if you just search Coffee Pods and Wads, or again, you can go through the link on the bio. Um, on Instagram. Um, Burbos Coaching and the Gymnastics Course are offering listeners 20% off available courses. Uh, BurbosCoachDevelopment.com will help develop a coach in a personal sense through self-discovery while learning academically about the psychological side of coaching. You can use the code PODS for 20% off. It's an online uh, course. Um, the Gymnastics Course is a CrossFit Preferred course, also offering 20% off for listeners. Um, there's loads of courses going on in America uh things are a bit dicey in europe at the minute but keep an eye and if you pick out one of the dates that you want to do you can just email them and use uh pods in your subject line and they'll sort you out with 20 percent off um today's guest is brian friend uh brian is a crossfit coach and a stats genius slash crossfit nerd um, we chat about coffee his regular appearances on talking leave fitness and get with the programming um where his love of crossfit and nerding out stem from as well as the 2020 games and his favorite sanctional event uh, enjoy listen share and tag thanks for doing this first of all um i think it's funny like i really became hyper aware of you this weekend like i knew who you were and i've listened to talking elite and get with the programming and stuff where you, you know you've you've uh given your your opinions and some data that i've like to be honest nine times out of ten i lose track of it immediately when I start hearing like the number more and more numbers, I'm like, no, I'm gone. I'll just listen to his, what he says at the last sentence when he says, so I think this person will win. I'll just listen to that bit. Um, but I think I really enjoyed last weekend, the kind of debriefs after each workout. Um, I think it's fun. Uh, like, cause I watch it as a fan. So I watch the workouts and think, okay, like there's some obvious ones. I think like say the, the last one, I was like, right, Carrie Pierce, surely, like, surely she's going to win this. So then I suppose it gets, it gets fun. I think, I think I kind of started doing it more after watching your videos of trying to think like, God, then what ramifications would that have? If, cause usually I just be like, oh, she'd probably win it. And then I wouldn't think about it again. But I was like, oh, yeah. what does that mean for Haley Adams then if she wins it and who needs to finish, you know, like and started thinking more about it. So it is fun, but it must be exhausting watching a sport as a fan and not as an analyst at the same time yeah and it was uh it was like a, a weird transition over the years because when i first started watching crossfit it was purely as a fan and then i started having just some interest in what was going on i've mentioned before but in 2015 especially i was i started to be like something's not right here because the person who just won the games didn't do any work in one of the workouts and there was no penalty for that in fact she was awarded 54 points so I was like, let me look at this a little bit. And it was from that point on that I just realized I kind of liked analyzing the sport from that perspective. It was a relatively new sport. So there were questions to be asked. And I think that CrossFit HQ is always asking those questions. And it's just even this week, like, I think I still think that there were ramifications from that year that showed up this week in the full effort rule. Yeah. That they're trying to figure out how can we make sure that the athletes are putting forth a performance that really represents what they're capable of regardless of the circumstances of the competition 
I don't think that they got it perfectly right this weekend with the full effort rule, but I don't mind that they had introduced that idea because what tells me is that they're thinking about that question and they're thinking about potential ways to make it to eventually solve the problem so that when the athletes take the floor, they have full incentive to give full effort. Why do you think that it was, is it because it's a, what would you call it? Like down to perspective of whether they gave a full effort or not. Is that why you think it's not right the way it is now? I just, I felt like the idea, it was just kind of, a, it wasn't fully developed idea. They put it out there kind of at the last minute. As far as I know, there's no like writing that explains what that is. It was just explained via kind of a, a debrief or a live video that I can't remember exactly where it first showed up. Um, but, you know, they had that 15 slash zero out there as soon as they were released the scoring system a month or two ago. Hmm. So they obviously had been thinking about it. It just seemed like in the probably in the scope of all of the things they had to consider this year that they usually don't have to consider from the testing to the bubble, to transporting the athletes, to getting food arranged for everyone inside there. I mean, there's tons of stuff that was just different for them that that might've just, they didn't have a chance to fully flesh that idea out. And right away in workout number one, I was watching Matt Fraser and Tia Claire Toomey not give full effort. They were clearly just watching the second place person. And they're like, Oh, they finished their, push jerks. I'm going to start my next set of bar muscle ups and I'll just yeah. maintain this distance. It's enough distance where even if I have a mistake in the last round, which they both happen to have, I could still regather myself, finish the work and still win the workout. Yeah. But I don't think that, that, that rule was ever intended for the first place. finisher. Yeah. I think it yeah. was really intended for the last place finisher. So Samuel Quant on the trail run could just say, forget about it. I'm not going to run the three miles back. I'll just take the zero points, which Armin Hammer is actually I think nine out of 10 probably should have done that. Done. I, I would have done that. I'd be sitting there with a duck egg going like, no, thanks Dave. I'm fine. I'll just, I'll get in that golf buggy and go back. I'll take the zero instead of the yeah. 15. But you know, the, the problem for an athlete like that is that because CrossFit um, historically, sometimes they make up rules on the fly. You know, you can go back to 2010. Dave's standing there talking to his team and he's saying, if this guy, Rich Froning, doesn't climb the rope, he's not going to be on the podium or he's not going to win the games or whatever mm -hmm. it was that they talked about. That wasn't in writing. They just made that decision. Mm -hmm. So if Sam Quant said, I'm not catching anyone on the way back, I'll just take the zero points. It, I, I don't think it would have been outside of the realm of possibility for Dave or whoever to come up to him and say, if you don't finish this run, you're not complete. You're not finishing the weekend. You're done. You're done. You're out. Like I could see them potentially doing that because they've done similar things in the past at times. But even, so, even like say in the snatch ladder one, I nudged my wife at one point and I was like, Noah surely has to get a zero there. But then, cause like he just stepped across the last bar. But then I suppose it's, it's that thing of like, it's a judgment call of like, well, he made it through the first round. So he obviously right. has given an effort to get to where he is. Like he didn't just not do the first bar. So then it does come down to that kind of thing of, I don't know, is it the judge's call, Castro's call, like Boz's call, who, whoever, to say like, he definitely could have done that if he wanted to. He chose not to. Is that not giving full effort? Is it, like, I'm not saying he should have gotten zero, but just in with the, I suppose, vagueness of the rule, it kind of leaves it open to interpretation that he could have or he could have gotten 15 or, you know, wherever he finished like. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's like the extreme opposite case of Samuel Quant. Like Sam mm. Quant could have made the decision to take zero points instead of running three miles through the hills. <laughs> Noah, if that's, a, if it was an apple sap, all he's opting not to do is to attempt to snatch 265 one more time. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas in the very next round, both catching David's daughter and Samuel Quant with no extra points to gain, gave it a second effort and hit the lift and it was successful. I was sitting at my, in my you know computer here watching and saying, come on, Sam, hit this lift. Because for me, I'm thinking to myself, this is a guy, he's not like Noah. People don't know him. You know, Noah is sometimes called the people's champ. The people love him, whatever. Sam Quant's a super quiet, humble individual, does most of his work in his garage. He's not a big presence on social media. But suddenly he's sitting up there contending for a podium spot and he's in the final heat here of this with Fraser and Adler, who everyone expected to be in the final heat. And he's, they're both done, so he's the only one with the camera on him. So I thought this would be a great moment for him. Hmm. Hit this lift, let people know that you're the real deal. You could snatch 285 under fatigue in the middle of a really difficult competition. And he did that. Noah didn't need to, to prove himself in any way. Or I, you know, I don't know what he's thinking at the time, but he did attempt that bar and miss it. So yeah, it's super great and super mm. vague. And that's why I think that I'm happy that they're thinking about that, but I think it may have been a little premature to announce it this year in the way that they did, because it really, I think it just is bringing up more questions and answers right now. Mm. Um, okay. I, we kind of got ahead of ourselves there. So there's <laughs> generally an introductory chat first to break the ice. We kind of skipped <laughs> Skipped in and went straight into the deep end. Um, but we, we'll go back to that later on. But I suppose I usually follow the trend of the name of coffee pods and wads. So starting off with coffee, are, are you a coffee lover? Do you drink a lot of coffee? I would. I think that in my life, I've probably had like 20 cups of coffee. Wow. However, this past, well, this past year during the, uh, the period of lockdown, I'll call it in the United States, where we were not able to leave our places of residence. I, I actually went up to Wisconsin and stayed on a farm with some friends and their daughter, um, she would regularly make us whipped coffee, which I'm not even really oh, sure what it is. That kind of Japanese, uh, it's like sugar and coffee, basically. Well, it was delicious. And I thoroughly enjoyed it after workouts, like uh, you know, yeah. about a half hour after workout, I would have that sometimes and it was pretty good. So that would probably be my best coffee experience. Yeah, that's I like that. I tried to make that... Um, over lockdown as well it went it just went viral like in april or something i remember early on in lockdown it just blew up on social media and everyone was making it and i was like all right i'll make it but you needed oh i think you had to use instant or something you couldn't use like i i have a machine and you couldn't use it and i didn't know that so i honest to god no joke spent at least 45 minutes whipping sugar and coffee and was just left with like splashes of coffee all over and really sticky because the sugar was in it but it was like all over me all over the walls all over everything and still just like like non-viscous liquid in the bowl not like no thicker than when i started so yeah your best is probably my worst (laughs) coffee i don't i don't know how to make it this uh their daughter's 12 years old and she's makes a great whipped coffee so (laughs) anytime i'm up there whenever i go visit them now i'm always i always ask her for one and she's happy to make one yeah that's fair um with podcasts then you so like like i mentioned you've been on talking elite get with programming and now obviously here the pinnacle (laughs) that's right yeah (laughs) Yeah, it's not right. Uh, what's, <laughs> what's, uh, what is it about podcasts that you enjoy? Like, why why do you agree? Because you're very quick to uh, agree to come on here. And you obviously enjoy going on Talking Elite because you regularly go back. Same with, with the programming. So is there something about the medium itself? Or is it just an opportunity to talk about something that you're passionate about? Yeah, I think it's probably more of the latter. Mm. Um, when When I... <clears throat> 
when I first, the way I first got involved in any of this was just reaching out to Sava Matosian via Instagram. Mm. And uh, I, I reached out to him because he'd started a segment on his podcast that was um, called uh, Analyzing the Leaderboard or something, something like that mm. on the CrossFit podcast during the open in 2018. And I thought it was a good opportunity to do something that is, it's kind of like my, my main goal in being involved in this space, which is to get more notoriety originally, and then eventually more um, sustainability for more athletes in the sport. Because most of the people who compete in the sport of CrossFit invest an insane amount of resources, whether it's time, money, sacrifice of relationships, or other jobs um, to, to prepare their bodies for what's needed to excel in the sport. And hardly any of them reap the rewards, even so much to the point that I remember watching competitions where someone will win an event or win their heat and the announcer or, or MC or whoever didn't even know who it was. Mm. And, and I was like, man, like these people deserve to be recognized, even if they're not Matt Fraser, you know, mm. or Rich Froning. And uh, so when I see, you know, opportunities like this, it's just an opportunity to talk about sport, to get more maybe recognition for some different aspects of it or some different uh, athletes. Um, and that's what I do at a lot of the competitions is I do the, the research for all the athletes in the field and I provide it to anyone who might need it for the weekend that's associated with that competition. So that if by, for whatever reason, Peter White happens to have a great event that we don't miss it for him, who's worked so hard to be there and has earned the right to be recognized. Literally never going to happen. <laughs> how, <laughs> how, how deep do you go then? So like, say, we'll say filthy last year, like, so you're saying you research every person was in the elite field and the elite mm -hmm. teams. And then like, how deep do you go? So say on, do you just go as deep as the chasm goes for that individual? Or do you say like, right, I'll go back like two years. Cause everything before that is probably irrelevant at this point. Or like, you know, like, do you have a cutoff point or do you go as far as that person's chronicle goes back? It just depends on the amount of time I'm given to prepare and also the amount of information that's available for the person. Mm. But even if there's a, someone who is like, you know, uh, just a team athlete, that's probably going to be middle of the field team. And there happens to be a lot of information on them. I'll include that information in the spreadsheet that I make uh, for the MCs or the broadcasters or the photographers or whatever, because in the case that that team happens to be a story, even if it's for a moment, then uh, they have the information available to them. And you just go back through, like, say the open, you know, like the games website. And then like, if you see that they were in a certain sanctional or a certain regional, you might look up that specific regional then that year or whatever. Like, is that basically it? Yeah. And at this point I just have a massive document that's called mm -hmm. like all athletes. So if I look at the roster and I see whomever the person is, I'll go to that document and search, you know, uh, find search, whatever. And, if, oh. and then I, if I have information for them, Imagine I'll if it got it deleted. <laughs> I, imagine well, I if, imagine I, if a crash I, just went. <laughs> yeah so obviously i have a backup but uh, <laughs> um because it is it's really it's the the reason why it's valuable anyone could go to the game site and search whatever the name is and see their yes. open results or regional results whatever but if you have a field of 30 elite um individual men 30 elite individual women and 30 teams you're looking at close to 200 athletes already mm. yeah. or if not more so uh, the time that it takes to do that is a lot of time, but I've put in the time over the years to yeah. accumulate that information. So of a field of 30 elite athletes at a traditional sanctional, 
I'll already have 95% of the information for 80% of the athletes competing. Mm. Right. And so it's, so it doesn't take me too long to organize that, but it, where, compared to someone else who doesn't have access to that, well, really to that document. Um, you're so with all those appearances then on podcasts and then like putting out videos and stuff yourself, like, do you, I'm curious, like, do you get much pushback? Like, do you get much disagreement? Like are people generally accepting of the data and generally accepting? Cause like, obviously, so, I mean, you, you make a prediction based on the data or you share the data on a certain individual and you say like, you know, well, you know, like I said, some are easy, like say Carrie Pierce with the workout at the weekend in all likelihood, she was going to build up a big lead on the handstand pushups that it suited her grand. Um, so you, it's, you know, the ones like those are kind of all right. But then when you start going into the other individuals in that workout or whatever, I suppose, especially when they're people that have fans and people that have like, you know, some vehement fans, maybe like, do you get much pushback when you say, Oh, I don't think such and such a person will do well in this workout. Or I think this person will do really well. People being like, no, fuck you. Like my, <laughs> my hero is going to destroy it. Like, do you get much kind of argument? Like, yeah, uh, not, not too often, but once in a while, yeah, I get some uh, feedback from people who say like, I really think you've, you've misrepresented what this person's capable of, or you've underestimated them here. It's usually not so violent <laughs> or aggressive. Um, and almost all the time, my response is the same is like, like you're definitely, you could definitely be right. And then this is a super impressive athlete and I'm excited to see what they can do this weekend, just based on the field that they're in and the events that they have. This is what I think is most likely to happen. And I yeah. pretty much kind of a stock response to someone like that, but I do like to respond to them e- either way. And then if they continue to be, you know, just like uncompromising in their views and I'll just let the conversation kind of die out. <laughs> um, do you ever feel harsh? on people like say i assume you're acquainted with some of the athletes so then if you're doing predictions and you're saying like do you know i think i think you predicted this year that uh, and i'm not having a go at your predictions because i know that there's so many like things that happen so this isn't i'm not having a pop at you but like if you say say this year you predicted carrie pierce would come fifth based on your understanding of the numbers then like when you put that out there are you like ugh hope Carrie doesn't see this and get pissed off. Like, do you know, like, do you know the people that you're putting out the predictions about? And do you ever feel like, you know, heart ruling head kind of thing when you're doing it? So, yes, I do know several of the athletes. Um, this particular year of the athletes competing, I don't have great relationships with that many of them. Uh, Jeff Adler and his coach are the ones that I know the best. And then I've, I've spent some time with Katrin doing some different things over the years. I've met many of them, but those are the only two that I've had, like even a real and Haley Adams, actually, I've had some interactions with her, but when I'm doing the numbers and putting out the predictions, I'm not thinking about that stuff at all. Um, if any of the athletes care to, to respond to me, you, it, their responses are almost always the same, which is like, saw your predictions. My goal is to beat your, your what you think I can do. And actually, yeah, and you reply, good. oh, uh, I'm sure you're a great athlete and I look forward to seeing what you can do. <laughs> your stock response, but you just change day to you. And oh, in that case, I'll say, awesome, man. I'm glad it's motivating you. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what, what you got this weekend. Because that's the thing about this sport is, you know, you can, you know, Matt Fraser was talking about it. I think it was maybe leading up to this, to the games this year. He's saying like, historically, we've had this, um, we've like just developed this pattern of saying like, Oh, because this person did bad in this workout once they're always going to do bad in 
handstand walking workouts. And he said, I don't have that mentality. Yeah. My mentality is because I did bad in it once, I'm going to make sure I never do bad in it again. Yeah, I, heard, I think that was this weekend. He said that. Yeah, that was that was. Uh, I, f- I found that kind of goosebumpy because it was like it's an attitude I definitely don't fucking have, but I admire the name. <laughs> like he was like, yeah, he was like, you might beat me in a workout, or I might lose a workout once, but I'm not going to lose it a second time or something like that. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I like that. That was a nice. Well, and and that's what I actually think was the most impressive part of what he did this weekend was the way that he won certain events. Hmm. So you talk about the the trail run, for example. I mean, Dave's idea to have that little twist in there was a good idea in theory, but ultimately it was by far the worst for him and then slightly less worse for Justin. And for everyone else, it was almost irrelevant because they all, none of them sprinted to the finish line. He sold out to win that workout. He didn't need to win the workout. First of all, he could have just let Justin go. He decided not to. Justin pushed him almost right up to the end of the first lap. He runs a couple then he composed himself. It was obviously like, you know, who knows what that flicking off of Dave, if that was in jest, if that was joking around, or if he was really, really deadly serious about that. Um, but anyway. I, I assume he thought Dave was taking the piss and didn't have the energy to speak, to say like, yeah, yeah, whatever, good joke. Like, so that was his response to what he thought was, it, what his, his, his perceived joke was to be like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And then he like, cause I mean, he obviously didn't have the energy to speak, but he suddenly found the energy to run the three miles back. So it was pretty impressive. Like, Well, and he, but he's said before that, I think it was 2019 ringer one ringer two. He goes, you give me one minute to recover. I'll recover better than anyone else. Hmm. And that's basically what he did there. He walked for a while. He just got caught up to Justin, walked up the hill with him. And by that point, by the time they got to the hill, which I'm not saying it was easy to get up that hill. I guarantee you that he felt good enough to do it again. Yeah. And that's, I think, you know, he never releases any of his training really, but I think that that's the thing that he trains for the most is I want to be able to recover better than everyone else. And whatever the movement is that's preventing me from doing that is the one I'm going to work on until I can do it with that movement too. Yeah. So, he, you know, so he did that there. And then you take a completely opposite event, the sprint sled sprint, which he was 21st in last year with the same sled on, on a, the event that had that uh, implement involved in it. His worst finish since 2016 the ranch deadlift ladder and what does he do is he comes around and wins the event but he doesn't just win the event he's literally pushed to his limits to win the event in the post event interview he says in the last 20 30 yards i couldn't feel my legs i just i just decided i wasn't going to lose and he just has the ability to do that on a long run on a short sprint when the lactic acid is unimaginably painful and then also in the bike event where, you know, some people have at the gym I work at, I've been like joking around that he looked like a little kid on that bike riding in the last lap. And I'm like, well, whatever he, whatever he looked like, he looked fiercely determined to not let Adler pass him. And he supposedly wasn't even sure Adler was on the same round as him. Yeah. He just wasn't going to have it. And I don't know. I don't know how you train for that. He just seems to have it in every instance when he needs it. I think it's just innate that he's spoken about it before that thing of like, he's willing to die out there to you know like he'd rather i feel like he'd rather die than have adler pass him or have you know he'd rather be like oh you won the race map but you'll never be able to run again i'd say he'd rather that than be like oh you came second you know well done i think he'd prefer the former rather than the latter i think he's just fucking intense when it comes to winning it's like win at all costs i think and that's a great learning point if there's anyone who's striving to be that good in this sport because you go back 10, 12 years ago, and Greg Glassman said, men and women will die for points at the CrossFit Games. 
Yeah. And he, and he, you know, for whatever you think about Glassman and what all the kind of folly that he's had in his career, he's also demonstrated an extreme level of insight and genius to create this program that's revolutionized fitness and health in the world. Mm-hmm. And he oftentimes makes comments well before they're like realized by the majority of us. And that might've been one of them. You know, he realized back then that if you want to see a true champion in this sport, it has to be someone who's willing to die for points on the field because it's really hard. Mm. Um, what brought you into an affiliate first? Like what was your first introduction to CrossFit? 2013, I had a kind of a devastating end to a relationship and some of my buddies um, who had played collegiate soccer with me had gotten into CrossFit after our college careers were over. And they, they were like, well, you're not going to sit at home and just be depressed all day. So get your ass up and come to the gym with us. And I went one day and I was like the worst client. I was like, just a, just a prick, you know? And the funny, you know, they brought, they brought me back the next day. I went again. And after a week I was like, well, you know what? It is one thing that I'm doing, like, while I'm doing this, I'm not thinking about her. So it was like Mm -hmm. a great distraction for me. And before I knew it, it was just something I wanted to go and do every day. The coolest part about that story is that the gym that they took me to in 2013, I I now work at that gym. And the guys who were the coaches that day when I was a total asshole to them are my my bosses, my friends, and like some of the people I see more, you know, on a daily basis now. Yeah, I thought you were going to say you married her or something in the end. <laughs> Obviously, oh, no, no, I actually I never <laughs> talked to her again. <laughs> um, was there a point in time then? Like, do you remember a specific moment, or a, you know, maybe a, s- a series of moments where you decided you were going to do your level one and coach, and that this was going to be your career? Um, yeah, I think it was. It just it, that developed like slowly over time. And after the 2014 Open is when I started doing, which is my first Open, is when I started doing a little bit of research on the sport, just to kind of see like, well, you know, who is this guy, Rich Froning? What has he already done? After the 2015 Games, like I told you, is when I came more interested in like the details about the sport. And um, around that time, I also moved and I was living with my brother in Texas and he had a big garage. So I, and we were both very busy with work at the time. So I got a, uh, all the equipment needed for a garage gym. And I basically started coaching him. Um, and that was like my first and myself, because we didn't have any coaches with us. So we were always filming ourselves comparing to videos online. And, and then, uh, I think it was the, like 2000, I guess it was 2016 is when I decided I want to do the level one. And I went with a, a friend of mine, we signed up for it together and went to it in Austin, Texas. And, uh, and that was awesome. Like it, it was, I mean, I'd been going, I, I was working out at home a lot, but I'd been to CrossFit gyms plenty of times. By that time, I'd, I'd probably been to 50 to 70 gyms around the country and some of them very regularly. And I felt like I got more good coaching in that weekend than I'd had in the three years before that on some really fundamental things. And I just decided like, that's pretty cool. And I want to be able to give people who find out about this you know, a high quality coaching early on. So they don't have to retrace their steps. It was a, when I went, I went to the games for the first time in 2016, as a fan, the last year was in California. And that's when I realized that like the way I'd been training was like, I was getting fit kind of, but I was actually like doing, doing kind of more harm than good in certain regards. So I like dialed it way back, took the level one, reevaluated my training, kind of rebuilt my squat from the ground up, rebuilt my shoulder overhead from the ground up. Um, and have like really adhered to those as like baseline principles for my own training. 
And then I got some opportunities to coach and I just like kind of took them part-time as they came. Originally I was just shadowing a guy who I thought was a really good coach at the gym I was attending. Then he gave me some opportunities. Uh, I actually also did eventually do the OPEC certification and there was kind of reasons for that. I thought it was really actually really valuable to do it because it offers kind of a, I want to say a contradictory perspective to CrossFit, but a different perspective. Mm. Um, I think that there's a good, actually a good harmony between those things, even though they're kind of have been at odds with each other for a majority of the past decade or so. Um, so I feel like it's, I feel like it's really healthy as a coach to draw on as many resources as you can and then apply the good aspects of all of those things in your, you know, in the delivery of your, of your coaching or teaching. Um, and then this, the past couple of years is it's really been about two years that I've been working as a full-time coach at a CrossFit gym. Um, cause I was doing some like more individualized coaching prior to that, um, remotely. And I, but I love it. This is like, it's the best job I've ever had. I think it's in part because just the guys I work for are really good employers and they run mm-hmm. a really good business and therefore they have really good clientele. And, um, there's a big social aspect of it in addition to just the fitness. So, you know. That's kind of the, the short story, I guess. No, oh, okay, yeah, that's good. Um, back to CrossFit itself. Then you actually you, you mentioned Rich a couple of times there, and you mentioned Dave a couple of times, and you actually mentioned Savan. So this is all just perfect. So he, uh, I was actually listening to the podcast they did together this morning. I kind of listened to half of it last week and listened to the rest of it this morning. And um, at one point, Castro like totally i don't know did you listen to it now i did yeah yeah you know when he, he like calls bullshit on rich like uh moving into team because it'll be less time demanding and less whatever and castro says like you know oh well he's training just as much if not more now than he was and he, you know he's well able to keep up he's you know he's finishing 19th in the open he could easily do it he could easily have competed this weekend he could easily have competed stage one or whatever and Savannah asked him, oh, are you calling bullshit then? He was like, that's a bit harsh. And I was expecting Dave to say, no, I'm not calling bullshit. And he said, no, it's not harsh. And I was like, fucking hell, all right, Dave. But like, I know that he loves controversy. Like he loves like, he'd love, he'd love Rich to hear that or someone to say it to Rich uh, in the hope that Rich would be like, right, fuck it. Next year, I'm going to, you know, like that it'd light a fire in him to suddenly go back. But like looking at it from, obviously from Rich's point of view, he's got a young family he's got a business that he's trying to build. He's got a future that he's trying to preserve because I mean, in the same podcast, Dave made the point of like, you know, he didn't say it, but basically like 1% make a living or become professional athletes in the sport. He like in a roundabout way, that's what he was saying is that it's so, so few. Um, But like Rich is obviously trying to build, I suppose, an empire that will last and like a source of income and a source of education or whatever that will last beyond his years of fitness, I suppose, or his years of competitive fitness anyway. So like, I can definitely see it from Rich's point of view. I was curious as an analyst, do you think that uh, what Castro is saying is true? Maybe not the opinion part of it, but that he could hold his own and that he could have made it through stage one and that he could have held his own in stage two. Or do you think that maybe that recovery that you're talking about with Matt is something that maybe might not be present anymore because like just due to age, I suppose. I mean, I've seen Rich compete live several times. I've watched, you know, plenty of, of stuff that he does. And I know that a lot of athletes go and train with him. 
In fact, Chandler Smith went and trained with him, I don't know, a week or two ago, and they just yeah. been posting some videos about that. And Chandler basically said, this guy kicked my ass all week. <laughs> well, in case you weren't aware, Chandler Smith missed qualifying by two points. Yeah. And he also did a bunch of the events as a part of the demo team that the top five just did. Um, Rich is more than capable physically of qualifying for the games every year as an individual and probably podium every year. I don't think he could beat Matt right now, but I'm, but on any given weekend, if he decided to do an individual competition, I would be hard pressed to, to rank him less than third going into the weekend, regardless of the field of competitors. Now he might not finish on the podium every weekend, but he's definitely still a top 10 individual athlete in the world. In my opinion, physically years ago, Froning said something that I think is still applicable. And once again, something that people should, who are trying to compete in this sport should pay attention to is that competing at the games is not just about your physical capacity. All of the people who are competing, there have incredible physical capacity to do these tests, but there's a mental component. There's an emotional component. There's a recovery component. There's these other factors that like, they don't really show up on paper. You can't chart them. You just have them or you don't. And in the case of rich, I think what he's always been saying is like the amount that I have to invest to, to maintain that mental toughness, to maintain that emotional toughness, that's what I don't want to do year round. Mm. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't feel that doing the team stuff. I am still training. And I'm, and I mean, I think that at this point he's pretty close to, if not as fit as he's ever been from a physical perspective, but I don't think he wants to invest the mental and emotional stress that's required to excel at the individual level that he would want to excel at. So that's what I think is the case for him. So physically, yeah, I think he's as good as almost anyone in the sport. Um, and, I th and I really respect his decision not, not to compete in that way, despite the fact that, you know, some high-profile people like Castro are making statements like that. Um, yeah, that's nicely put. I think, I, like, I think even people I've spoken to who have done both, who have done, like, individual and done team, like, they make the point that the team workouts are just as hard, if not harder in a different way, because like, you know, if there's something that you're not good at and everyone else is good at, you're the weak link. And if there's something that you're really good at, you know, like that, it wavers so many times in an, in a competition that like, there's a, a different stress put on your body because you might be having to keep up with someone else, or you might be having to do something synchronized, or you might be having to, you know, not stop lunging the worm or whatever. So like you say, I don't think it's a physical uh, issue. I think it's like, I think what should have been said and what was maybe, I think he should have been pushed a bit hard, pushed back a bit harder about like, you know, well, you know, he has, you know, like Savan mentioned, oh, he has a young family, but I think that's, I think that's the real crux of it is that like, you need to make those sacrifices and it's easier not to have to choose. It's easier to say, well, look, I'm going to go out on top. I'm going to enjoy my family, spend 99% of my time at home or next door to my home where I'm easily accessible. And it's not like I'm traveling here. I'm traveling there. I'm going away for, you know, weeks on end, or I'm, you know, having to do a shit ton of interviews or having to do, you know, like that there's just so many less demands, so many like less, directions you're being pulled in that you can just focus on whatever you want because i think he earned the right as well in fairness like i think if fraser decided this weekend you know what i'm finished uh individual i'm going i don't think Hannah would be like oh for fuck's sake like i think you know people would be like yeah okay fair enough like you know you've done you've you've earned your right to decide when you quit or when you you know change 
move across to a different ladder, I guess. So I think, yeah, maybe maybe there should have been a bit more pushback. I'll ask him myself someday, maybe, if he ever yeah, replies. Cool. Um, no, the other thing is, you know, Rich has said that when he was competing as an individual, he would sleep 10 to 12 hours every night. Hmm. And like he's like, if I wasn't doing that, I couldn't have trained the way I was then. Yeah. He's still training pretty hard. I, I imagine he still gets decent sleep. But, you know, anyone who has kids know that if you have three kids that are that age, you're, you're not sleeping 10 to 12 hours every night. <laughs> unless you're drugging the kids i don't think so <laughs> um going back to last again then i was curious what your favorite test was and why from this past weekend mm. um i so that's a tough question overall i actually thought this was one of the best tests that dave's ever come up with for the athletes to complete um, you mean stage stage two or both yes, combined yes, stage okay two. stage two i don't it's difficult for me to consider stage one and stage two uh, as, as one, one test. Yeah. I've, I look at them as two completely separate tests. Um, but stage two, I think, is right up there with, you know, uh, one or two other years maybe as the most complete, best, and exciting test that Dave's put together. The one drawback is that there were only five athletes able mm-hmm. to compete. And I think if we had a field of 10 or 20 taking on these tests, that this would probably have stood out as, as the best CrossFit games we've seen yet individually in terms of the workouts. I think that my, my actual, I was kind of surprised. I think that actually my favorite workout was possibly the swimming workout. I fucking um, love that workout. <laughs> it was, it looks kind of simple on paper. Like, uh, yeah. You're like, so what's yeah. the big deal about this? Like no problem. And then when you hear Noel Olsen saying, I thought I wasn't going to finish round three. And Matt Fraser saying that's the most difficult games workout I've done. Yeah. And and when and then I started thinking about it. I I was a pretty good swimmer growing up, so you know I know what a fifty meter swim feels like. But what I've never done is sprinted on an assault bike and then jumped in a pool. There's where, a big delay on an assault bike, like a big. You get you're on it yeah. and you feel fine. You get off and you feel fine. And then there's about two more seconds or three more seconds go past, and that's when your heart rate goes up and your breathing starts getting affected and that's literally as their face hits the water is when that would be happening like yeah and then you think about what they have to do on the other end a set of 10 ghd sit-ups is nothing for those guys but what you're well what you're doing in a ghd sit-up is you're just you're putting your body which is already in this crisis mode after that what you just described happening where it's got to flip upside down and then back up and and go through this like pretty violent range of motion really quickly and then basically do the inverse of that with the slam ball, where instead of going backwards and forwards, now you're going forwards and up. And your eye levels are changing. The elevation of your physical heart relative to the ground is changing. And these components all just stack on top of each other. But I think that the sneakiest part about it was the rest interval. Yeah. Because it was basically two minutes of work, two minutes of rest. Hmm. And two minutes of rest is just enough time from a programming perspective for you to kind of settle down and, and whatever but then if you have to immediately repeat the same effort, that's extremely challenging. But that's not what they had to do. They had to repeat the same effort in reverse order, which is something that therefore round two was a completely new experience. And so yeah. you actually only got to learn about round one for round. You only had one round where you already knew what it was going to feel like to do that. And I don't think they, you know, I don't think they were able to do really any testing of that stuff beforehand because it was announced right before they did it. And all of those factors combined caught the athletes off guard. But that's what I want to see at the CrossFit Games. I want to see a test that's not a, it's not a joke or something that people could laugh at, like biking, swimming, 
dis difficult ab workout and picking a heavy object overhead and putting it back down on the ground several times are all good tests of fitness. Put them together in this combination with this weird work and rest pattern. You go this way, then you go that way. And what you're left with is who can figure this out the best on the fly. And, mm -hmm. and you need, you know, I understand the value of releasing some of the workouts ahead of time, but it's just as value, if not more so to have some events like this that are complete surprises for the athletes where you can actually see them trying to figure it out as they go. Yeah. It's interesting as well. Cause I think I spoke to Chris Hinshaw before and he mentioned like that the top people at of the course. top are the people that are the most intelligent, the people that like, you know, he, he, he remembered the, the rogue invitation when they did the shooting, uh, shooting workout. And he was like, you know, some people were like, Oh, I shoot like it's fine. But he was like the really intelligent ones were pretending they had never held a gun before and listening to everything that was being said so that they could process it and, you know, think about what was happening. And I, I think it's the same. Maybe we didn't see as much of it because it was the top five that were there. Like, like you say, if there was a larger pool, you might've seen someone like totally fuck that workout up and like, you know, just go apeshit on the first assault bike and then drown because they didn't know what to do afterwards. But, um, I think, cause even like, just when you say it like that about going in reverse, okay. The stopping the slam balls, having two minutes and then starting the slam balls again, like no big deal. Really. You're not, you know, you're not going to be like dreading doing them again. Like the other kind of grand, but the assault bike, like if you slog an assault bike when you're empty and get off and then have to get on it and sprint again next, like that's so more like your emotions are just going to be like, fuck this. Like, cause everyone's been there where you, but never, you rarely do it in reverse like that, where you're like slogging it, grinding it out, just waiting for the last tick of the calories so you can just get off and then immediately having to go back on again. And like, you're obviously going to, like you say, you're going to be recovered a bit. You're going to be a bit fresher. So you are going to kill it a bit more and then you're going to die off earlier each time. Like I think what well, I'd, I'd love to see the, like the whoop data from say no Olsen or whoever else has oh, one of that, where you can see the, the drops as, as they go on. Cause I don't mind fucking drops a good bit as I go on. Um, but yeah, I well, think no, that, I that mean, was brilliant. Noah is the one athlete that really bombed that workout relative to mm. what everyone expected for him to finish in the bottom 40% of a field of athletes in a swimming workout is yeah. unheard of. Regardless of the number of athletes in the field, he's always in the top 10%, usually in the top three people. Um, so that was, that was, you know, he definitely felt the effects of that in a different way than a swimming workouts ever hit him before. And I think that's pretty cool. And that's the type of tests that, you know, Dave is people give Dave a lot of shit. He comes up with things that are not unfair tests, but they put athletes in situations that they're not used to being in. And as a result of that, everyone, not just those athletes, everyone in the CrossFit space who's paying attention goes back and they'll start to do workouts that mirror that. I mean, we're going to program one at our gym. Obviously, we're not, we don't have a pool in the gym, but we're going to program a similar workout where it's, you know, you go this way for first round, you come back for the second round and mm. And we'll get to get some semblance of a feeling of what that's like with the worst work to rest ratio. Yeah. But the, uh, the thing you said about Hinshaw and the intelligence, if you pay attention to the athletes that regularly do well at the games, it's more than just their physical prowess. It's just all these small components that matter. Look at the last workout. For example, you saw Brooke uh, Wells and Haley Adams hands. I'm sure. But you know who had no problems at all with their hands? Matt and Tia. Matt was playing table tennis the next day with O'Keefe at CrossFit HQ. 
So it's, it's like these small details that they just perfect. Like they find ways to make sure that that problem of tearing your hands doesn't happen to them. Yeah. And it's like, you would think that at the top five of the games that all of the athletes would be able to figure out a way to not tear. If someone, if, if one or two of them can, how come the other ones can't, but they just, they realize that those small details aren't, they can become big problems. If you don't know how to, uh, you know, properly approach a weekend, a competition, an individual event or whatever it is. And the best in the sport have found ways to make sure that those things don't happen to them, whether it's mentally or just in the way that prepare their bodies. And there's probably so many things that I don't even know that they're doing to make sure that those small things don't become big things over the course of the weekend. Yeah. Well, if you look at their Instagram, it's all beam beam solves everything. <laughs> That's <laughs> I, you know, I'm always skeptical of the athletes yeah, so that was, promoting that, those products, but that was tongue in cheek. <laughs> whatever they're doing, it definitely whatever they're doing, it is working for them. So yeah, yeah. Um, I think a lot of uh, analysis is like like I equated to fantasy football. So like I follow soccer, and you know I do fantasy football every every year. Like you buy your players every year. I look back at. Oh, what did this guy get last year and who's he playing for this year and you know so on and so forth and then I make my team I spend I don't know like four days trying to come up with a funny name for the team and then <laughs> and then I sit and look at it and I admire it and I'm like I'm gonna fucking win this this year I'm gonna be top of my own not even my own league I'm just gonna win everything because this is without question the best team three weeks in i'm like right fuck it damage control like just don't finish last like i got it totally wrong everything is shit like there's that i think that human element where you can have all the data and all the numbers and then someone will you know like a barbell will slip or they'll you know maybe just sandbag a workout or misjudge a workout or that that like mental element or maybe like ripping your hands or whatever comes into it like as an analyst is that really annoying when you predict something's going to happen based on numbers and then the human element kind of gets in the way of that sometimes i mean i'll give you an example from this past weekend <clears throat> i don't know if you uh, follow fantasy fitnessing i think is what they're called on instagram oh, yeah. they had like five or six of us who are analysts in the sports and our predictions for the podium and then they were like releasing our standings day by day. And after the first day, I was in dead last place. <laughs> and I'm like, and, you know, I, I don't even really know a lot of those. Chase Ingram was one of them, but I don't know all the other people. But I was looking at it and I was like, basically, the reason I was in last place is because everyone had Matt, Justin, Noah, except for me. And I had Matt, Noah, Justin. Well, if you go to the last, the very last workout, if, if Matt Fraser had not beaten Noah Olson in that workout, if let's just say Tia couldn't catch Noah and Matt was like, ah, screw it. I don't need to beat Noah anyways. I'd made this commitment to stay with Tia and I'm going to stay with her. I'll let Noah have this one. If that had played out that way, then Noah would have overtaken Menderos for the podium. And then all those guys who had projected Noah third on the podium would have passed me on those rankings. So like, I am looking at like little details like that, but the, the, the reality is with the exception of the true greats, Fraser and Tia, where it's like, it doesn't really matter the circumstance they're going to, they're going to excel and win basically on the rest of the places, there were several details over the course of the weekend. Some of them we've talked about with like, you know, trying a little bit harder here or not trying a little bit harder there, a matter of a second here or a second there. Maybe it's something that we didn't even see on camera where they had to take an extra chalk break because they slipped off the bar or, you know, whatever it could have been. 
they rolled their ankle coming down one of the hills on Happy Star. Who knows what it, what all these little things are that make these little jostlings. And in this weekend, more so than mo most weekends, you know, one mistake can cost you 40 points real quickly. And that can, you know, you look at the men's leaderboard, but, you know, and it's only 20 points between third and fourth with 20 points. It's kind of a lot of points out of 1,200, but it's actually just one placement in one event at any point during the weekend. Yeah. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I think that I just, I'm not too worried usually about how my predictions unfold. I like to look back and see. Um, actually, last year before the uh, Filthy 150, the pro sports book out there had contacted me to see if I wanted to work with them. And I was like, well, I have some information I can show you about how accurate my predictions are they were going to do some sports betting for the filthy 150. And so like being able to show that to someone like that sports book and say like, you know, I make predictions for these competitions, but there's a lot of variability in the competitions themselves. And sometimes I don't know the workouts or all the workouts. So I'm just, it's like, you know, there's a lot of guesswork. So the more I know ahead of time, the more I feel like I should be able to assess things. But then you have that factor we talked about with Matt Fraser, which is, Sometimes someone shows up to a competition, like a Samuel Quant's a good example. He doesn't do a lot of competitions. So you might not see him compete for a full year before the next time he shows up to a live event. And when he shows up to a live event, I, I don't know. There's too many athletes in the sport. I don't know if his knee has been bothering him or not. I don't know if he's been working on his running or not. You know, I'm, these are things that I can just say, well, the last time we saw him, he took last place in the two running events. So he's probably not going to do that well if there's a long running event this weekend. And if he comes out and wins a running event, I don't feel bad about that. Then I'll just reassess and I'll say, okay, either he's figured it out or this field of competitors was way worse at running than the last time we saw him run. Yeah. Um, do you think, so you, you, you said there that you find it difficult to see stage one and stage two as an, an entire organism, like one thing. Mm -hmm. Do you think looking at them combined do you think that together they were a fair test or do you think that they have to be viewed as two totally separate things because like the field changed and the circumstances changed i think the latter i mean to me if you're creating a, a test for 30 men and 30 women and the only goal of the test is to get down to five it doesn't matter if you win it or if you're fifth you've yeah. advanced to the next stage sure the prize well, actually no the prize money for the placings doesn't even matter you could get a vent prize money for placing top three in any individual event. Yeah. So that's a totally different. If you're an athlete approaching that test, your approach is different. Get in the top five at all costs. Nothing else matters. Once you've made the top five, now you have, first of all, an entire another month to prepare whatever that means for you. But your mindset is completely different. Jeff Adler probably said this better than any of the other athletes in his like interviews leading up to the competition. He's like, I'm already one of the five fittest on earth this year. That's something that like, that was a goal of mine to make the top five. I've already done it. So the worst I can do is already meet my season long goal. Hmm. So now I'm coming into this competition. If I'm Jeff Adler, not saying like, I got to get fifth or better somehow, any way that I can. Instead, he's saying, let's see how good I can be. Maybe he has this more relaxed, more free spirit approach, or maybe he's Noah Olson and he's coming in with a, with a lot of stress because he's saying like, man, I was second last year. And I made it through all those cuts and all this adversity and fought off a field of 148 athletes to finish second. If I come into a field of five and don't make the podium this year, how is that going to look when, so when people start evaluating my career? So yeah. maybe he's coming into this weekend with a lot of stress of saying like, I better finish on the podium. And actually, if I don't finish second, it's a disappointing year for me and yeah. he's striving to win it. So there, you know, to me, because of the mindset that the athletes have to have going into that field of 30 competition compared to the field of five, 
like we talked about, the mental component is a big component of this sport. So I don't see really how you could say that they're part of the same test. Is there anyone uh, that you think maybe the workouts in stage one or their performance in stage one, just like maybe the workouts didn't suit them, maybe they just didn't perform well, whatever. Is there anyone in stage one who didn't make it to stage two that you think realistically could have caused a massive upset to the way things stood at the end of stage two? Like say if there was six athletes, is there one person that you can pick out that think if they had qualified, I think everything would have been different. Maybe not Matt, but everything else. 100%. Well, first of all, if Pat Vellner wasn't injured for that first stage of the competition, he would have made the top five. He actually only missed by like 19 points. And I looked, I looked at how close it was. I think it was like on certain workouts. I don't have the information in front of me, like a couple seconds. And well, just the fact that he couldn't squat at all, he finished way down in the front squat compared to where he would have. If he could have just done the front squat at his max capacity, he would have made it to the top five. Like that alone would have sent, given him enough points. So he definitely mm-hmm. would have been in the field, which would have kept out probably Adler. But if you're just looking at the, like the next 10 guys, if with the tests that we saw this past weekend, if there were 10 people in the field, <clears throat> yeah, I think Pat Vellner, BKG, Chandler Smith, all would have had just as good a chance to be on the podium as Sam Quant, Justin Medeiros, or Noah Olson. You know, if you just flip those three guys in and out, I think you'd have a very similar competition just with, with different names. Hmm. And that's what I kind of, I'm always keeping this, like, um, I call like, I call it tiers of athletes. So like Fraser's in his own tier. And then in the next tier, I have like five guys and the next year has like 10 guys. And the next year might have 20 guys. So I basically think that there's like, if you take the top three tiers, one, five and 10, so 15 or 16 athletes outside of Fraser, like the next 15 athletes, given a given a certain set of circumstances, you could see a huge change. And the exact same thing is true on the women's side. I am doing a little bit of a research into certain athletes who excelled at sanctionals in the past two years and had very underwhelming performances at the games. And I'm probably going to be releasing those or doing some episodes with Talking Elite Fitness to take a more in-depth look at an individual athlete and, and kind of ask that question that you're asking, like, how come this person's top three in every sanctional they've ever done but can't finish inside the top 10 in the games these two years. Hmm. Yeah. A couple, <laughs> a couple of people spring to mind. Um, sure. Is there, uh, do you think like there's a realistic possibility of Matt or Tia being usurped, assuming like they call time on their own terms? Like, do you think there's a possibility, you know, an actual, like a, a like a, a feasible possibility of anybody closing the gap before this? I would say uh, not anyone that we know of right now and not in the next two years. Um, If you told me that three years from now, Fraser was still competing and someone beat him at the games, I'd still say it was a stretch, but I could see it. Same thing for Tia. Um, I mean, like Katrin had a great weekend and Katrin is, you know, a really a really elite ambassador of the sport. She's been in the top five for, I think, six years in a row now. And there's not very many athletes who can say that. And she didn't, she, she didn't have a chance against Tia this weekend. So yeah, I think they're, you know, head, shoulders and torso above the rest of the field right now. And it, and it's okay. Like if you look back at individual sports in history, there's oftentimes athletes like this in the early two mm-hmm. thousands, it was literally every golf tournament. It was Tiger Woods or the field. 
Yeah. And Roger Federer made the finals of every major for like four consecutive years. It just depends on the perspective that you approach it from. And, you know, Chase and Bill and Sean talked about this throughout the weekend. If you're watching this and realizing that you're seeing something that you might never see again in terms of a level of fitness, competitiveness, and greatness out of these two people, then you should be in awe and enjoying it. If you're one of these people who just likes to be critical of things, and so you say, like, this is boring and stupid. I know who's going to win anyway. Then just don't watch it. We don't need that opinion because from, you know, from a, a, a broader perspective of sport, people want to see the best. And in our sport, we don't know what the best is yet. They're the best example we've seen. And it's kind of crazy because six years ago, no one, no one thought we'd see someone like Froning ever again. Mm-hmm. And now we've seen someone who at this point, I think it's really, there's no way to dispute it. He's better than Froning was. Mm-hmm. Um, he's doing, he's doing better against better athletes. And I'd never take anything away from it. Like all you can do is the, your best against the field of competitors that are before you. So the fact that the athletes are better, that's not Rich's fault at all. But yeah. the fact that, that Matt is performing better against his competitors than Rich did against the guys he, he had to beat, that's un, undeniable. And so he is now the new standard. And she and Tia is the new standard for the, the girls. And we'll have to see as the years unfold if if this is like a – a once every 10 year type thing, or if this is like a once every 50 year type thing. Yeah. Like that was my next question. I think like the dominance of say Froning and Fraser and then Tia on the women's side, like there hasn't really been that kind of dominance. Like Froning was there before Fraser, but there wasn't really anyone dominating the women's side before Tia. Um, Like I think, I, I suppose like, is that those type of dominances like finite because I suppose as a sport grows and gets bigger and more people are doing it and more people are doing it, like Justin has been doing it since he was like 12 or something. You've got like, say, Dallin Pepper, who, you know, dominated the teenage divisions. Now he's eyeing up like he's already talking about the Open next year and he's just fucking huge all of a sudden. And you've got like monster, <laughs> ridiculous. And then you've got like, say, Haley, who's been doing it. She's young as well. She has loads of time on her side. Like, do you think that maybe as those type of athletes and more of those type of athletes who grow up with the sport will maybe make it like a more even spread where like, you know, one might win one. It might be like tit for tat rather than just one person dominating. Yeah, I think that that is coming. I, I have a, uh, another document that I keep tabs on, which is like best CrossFitters under 25, because I think that the, like the optimal age for a CrossFitter is like 24 to 28 ish. So Dave and, says, uh, I, well, I agree with him in that, in that regard. <laughs> and, uh, you know, obviously you see Fraser's 30 years old and just had the most dominating performance we've ever seen. So there's some, some gray area in there, but I think that three, four, five years from now, when Fraser and Tia are no longer competing, Fellner and, you know, maybe Katrin, Sarah Sigmund's daughter, all these are approaching 30, 32, 34 years old. And they're kind of out of the sport or at the tail end of their elite careers that we will see, a, a, I don't know if it's a youth movement, but just people who are in the 20 to 24 age range right now, that will be 24 to 28, four years from now. And I think it's, I do think that it's rare to have someone that's that much better than everyone else. So I think that we're, you know, a couple of years away, maybe, but who knows, maybe Matt retires this year. The last interview that he gave, gave me the impression that like, if he retired, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. But as long as he's, as long as they stay around, we'll probably have to wait three to five years to see something like that. But I do think that it's extremely likely that we'll have something like you just described, where there's a lot of parody at the top of the sport. 
Yeah, Shane actually, when I interviewed him, said, um, as long as they're as like it it mightn't mean anything, but I was kind of like after like it was only after directly after he said it, I was like, that was weird, but keep going because I'm just gonna sit staring at him if I'm thinking about it. So just keep moving. And then afterwards it like really sat with me. He was like, as long as their aim is to find the fittest on earth, we're gonna keep doing it and keep like competing to win and keep trying to prove that we're the fittest on earth. And then he was like, but if it gets uh if it changes from that, if the goal changes from that, and if it becomes fuck, I don't want to misquote him now, and I can't remember what he said. Something along the lines of if it becomes gimmicky or if it becomes, you know, like uh, attention grabbing or something like that, um, we're out. Like, or we'll have to look at something. He, shit, he didn't say we're out. That's a misquote. He said, he said we'll have to look, we'll have to reevaluate or something like that. But I just, it was a weird like line i thought to throw in i just thought it was like kind of unnecessary to say and i was kind of like oh why does he say that and then well in the same interview he also said i don't like doing podcasts because i usually am afraid that i'm going to say something that i shouldn't say or say something that would be read into too much and now here i'm doing exactly what he fucking said but anyway yeah i just thought it was interesting well look i mean matt and tia have ideal situations and it's and it's almost unfair how convenient and, and easy their life is outside of the incredibly difficult training that they do. Mm. Right. They have, I mean, Sammy is a rare person. She's uh, super, super fit, super kind. And she's a, a, an amazing cook who loves to cook. Matt never has to worry about his food. Mm. It's just there and ready for him. Every time he trains, when I finish training, I'm exhausted. And then I have to come home and make food for myself. And you know how much easier it would be if I came home and I sat down at the table and someone just put a plate of the perfect amount of food in perfect proportions for me every time I worked out. And you, and you look at, you know, I will still contend that Pat Vellner is the second fittest on earth in terms of men right now. And there's really need to talk about why, but look at this guy, you know, he works a full-time job in addition to all of the other things that he's pursuing in the sport. And that's a choice that he's made. But there's just very few people who have, I mean, Fraser never has to buy any equipment. He never has to buy a car. He doesn't ever have to buy a bed. He doesn't even have to buy food. Butcher Box sends him all that food all the time. Like he doesn't have to buy apparel. He doesn't have to worry. Literally has no worries. And he's pretty straightforward about it. He says, eat, sleep, train, repeat. But when you like think about what that actually means for him, it's literally nothing else. When he has nothing to do, he just watches TV. Yeah. And because that's just recovery, but he's not just watching TV. He's mobilizing and doing body work and all these other things. So his, he has this lifestyle that allows him to train and focus solely on training that most of the other people who want to beat him don't have the luxury of doing. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, yeah, as long as it makes sense for them, however, they fit, you know, however they define that, as long as it makes sense for them to comp- continue competing, they're already the best. And they have the best environment and resources and everything they need at their disposal to continue to train in an environment that's more optimal than anyone else. So it's going to be pretty tough to beat them or catch them, given all of that. Yeah. I, if you want to do it, I'll, I'll move over. I'll cook you dinner if you, uh, if you really give it a good go. I wonder if my 275-pound back squat will compete. <laughs> I can answer that. <laughs> right you, yeah. be, you surely have a spreadsheet where you're right down the bottom of the elite <laughs> you just put all your own numbers in that's what i do if i was doing it I'm... yeah it's called the open i was about twenty thousand <laughs> last year <laughs> yeah ahead of me um 
Sanctionals then uh, in their ro- most recent guys uh, seem to be on the chopping block. Um, judging by what people have said and you know, kind of rumors, I guess. Um, I was curious what sanctional of the ones that you saw did you enjoy the most? And like, as a fan or as an analyst, or I don't know if they're mutually exclusive or the same thing. Oh man, that's a tough question. I don't, I don't know that I've really been to one or even watched one that I haven't haven't enjoyed obviously the more for me the more access i have to the um competition the more enjoyable it is and so i would say i i really enjoyed dubai last year because the competition was what you described earlier as something like will we see this again there was a lot of parody and a lot of unknown on the men's side going into the final event uh brent Fikowski, Pat Vellner, roman krenikov all could have won the competition at that point and sam mm-hmm. briggs and sarah sigmund's daughter and Karen Freyova and Jamie Simmons, they, it was really tight and really close and really exciting. And this was in a big field of like 30 athletes. You still had like five or six who rose to the top and were regularly there. And then by the end of the weekend, two or three who were still vying for the title or, or second or third place. So from a comp- competition standpoint, that's what I, that's what I want to see as a fan. If I'm not going to watch the greatest ever, then I want to see something where it's really tight. So I might, I might have to give Dubai 2019 and not if I have to pick one. I know you probably wanted me to say filthy 150. It would probably be my number two. Oh, I have no vested interest in it. Like I like them, but I, I, you know, I'm not going to get any money from it if you say that. So. <laughs> but there's, a, I mean, there's a lot of factors involved. Like the actual experience when you get to go to a sanctional and work at it and interact with some of the yeah. people that put it on and learn about, about like why they chose these events and why they chose this venue and why they, you know, why they do all that they do. Like when I, like Jamie and, um, Serena were very for, forward with me in conversations. We were able to learn. I was able to learn a lot about their mind, like how they think about creating a competition for elite level athletes. And that's pretty cool to have that, that background. Like I went, you know, at Dubai, I went there, but I didn't talk to the guys who make the events because they're, they're not accessible. They're mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, running the country also or something like that. <laughs> Setting oil or something. <laughs> um, in your opinion, then, what's the best fairest way of winding up with 30 or 35 of the fittest people in Madison next year. So like we've had say sectionals, regionals, super regionals, national champions, sanctionals, wild cards, like the open itself, like what would be the best way? Um, and I suppose as well, is that best way inclusive or is finding the fittest people on earth and being inclusive, are they two mutually exclusive ideas outside of just doing the open? Uh, yeah. So I think, I think that the, uh, I think that there's like an kind of an optimal number of, of athletes to have at the premier competition for the sport. And I don't think it's the same number necessarily that you need to have in the qualifying events. I think it's probably 20 athletes, maybe 30. Um, that's kind of like the two numbers that I think are potentially appropriate for the, for the final competition. We'll, cut, we'll say it's the games. The best process to get down to those 30 for this year is potentially still different than in an optimal year because of the global situation that we're in. What I will say is I have full confidence after watching this past weekend that CrossFit will have a plan to make sure that that happens regardless of what they are or are not able to do given certain restrictions that we might continue to have throughout part or all of next year. If COVID wasn't a factor in that, 
my my feeling is that they're going to have a season that starts in February with the Open, ends in August with the games, and there's going to be something in the middle. I don't know what it'll be called. That'll be about two months worth of competitions, and that those should be the qualifying events for the games. I would like to see a season where the Open is available for everyone, but that it's also intended to select a certain number of people who are eligible to compete in those competitions. And then their performances at those competitions are what determines whether they get to go to the games or not. Okay. So I think there should be a three-step process for the best in the sport. I, th- I think that you, the off season, the way it is or will be next year from August to February, I think that that's super valuable for the athletes. If you want to see them have the best performances when they do compete or year after year, but I still think that we'll have major competitions like Dubai CrossFit Championships or whatever it ends up being called that are in the off season. And, that, and those, I think, are also really important because the only way we can have a lot of professional athletes in the sport is if there's a financial sustainability for them to be a professional athlete. And so then you can make your choice if you're Pat Vellner. Do I want to compete in Dubai and have the chance to win 50 grand in December? Or do I want to tailor my training and I'm only thinking about the games because I'm happy with the financial situation and the job that I have otherwise. And it would be really cool if I could eventually call myself fittest on earth. So mm-hmm. like each athlete can make that choice for themselves. So I think that's, that would be like the best situation where we have some premier kind of off season events where athletes can choose if they want to compete or not. But ultimately they know that if I want to get to the pinnacle, the games, I have to go through the open. I have to do well enough in the open to make it to whatever. Then I have to go to one or more of those events and perform live in front of an audience with judge against other people who've earned a right to be here and do well enough. However you define well enough to get one of those spots at the games. I think that fans want to see that too. And do you think those events in between the open and the games need to be all programmed the same or like say something I was always curious about was like, why not utilize say the, the geographical factors of like, say if you, if you included Dubai, so say if Dubai moved to, well, it'd be pretty fucking hot, but say if Dubai <laughs> moved like May as one of these funneling events, then, or in Miami, surely you could use the sea and you, you know, like, and whereas if there was one in like London, you're like, you're probably not going to swim. Like, do you know what I mean? Where, like, it, it, do you think that, do you think that it needs to be programmed by the same person or same people? Or do you think that maybe if Castro kind of throws an eye over it and says like, no, I wouldn't put that in, or you need to have a workout that's a chipper, a workout that's a sprint, you know, like that kind of without being too prescriptive. Mm-hmm. No, that I mean, people in our, in the sport are certainly having those conversations <clears throat> in the back rooms. And I think that there should be some kind of a, a guidelines that those events have to, adhere to from a, from a safety perspective, from a a prize pool perspective, but also from a programming perspective. And I think that, you know, when you're talking about programming, it could be something like, it's gotta be at least a three day competition. Like we're not going to use any two day competitions to qualify people for the games because the games should be in in everything in, in, uh, along with everything else should be a test of resiliency over three to five days. So we need to find people who are actually able to perform well after we've beat the crap out of their body for two days of testing. So I think, you know, that might be uh, a good, a good l- guideline to implement. We, this, these competitions that are going to qualify people to the games, they need to be at least three days. They need to have at least eight events. They need to, you know, like some small stuff like that. They need to test running because we're probably not going to test in the open. 
do they have to test swimming? I would say no, because we've had a successful model in the past of regionals where they never tested swimming. Mm. They still found people who were, you know, I think it's hard to argue that the people who were at the games, especially the top 30 athletes in the games, 2015 through 18, who never had to swim to qualify there, they were still the right athletes that were there. Mm. So yeah, you, and, and it might, maybe swimming is not required, but it's certainly not prohibited. You could still test swimming mm. if you have a location that facilitates it. So yeah, I'd like to see something where there's, you know, certain things that they have to do, but also I don't have a problem with different events, having some freedom in terms of creativity with the programming. I think that's a really healthy thing for, um, for really for the sport as a whole and even for the community as a whole. Because sometimes you'll see an event at a certain competition that sparks an idea for someone like me who just programs for the average person in the gym. And I say, oh, you know what? That's not something that we've really experimented with at our gym. And, uh, and of course, we want to have our clients there for a long time. So we want to continuously be progressing them in some ways. So if you just allow one person to program all those things, and you're potentially missing out on the opportunity for all of us to learn from some other great minds in the space. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah i think no it's i think what you're saying is kind of summing up what a lot of people's thoughts are that like you you need that overarching control but with that freedom to have a bit of self-expression or a bit of i don't know is it self-expression when it's a group of people but you know what i mean um so speaking of the open then generally in mid-january uh this is a similar thought process to my fantasy football thought process Generally in, in mid January, I'll I'll sit down. I think, all right, opens coming up. What do I need to improve on? In a classic like doom to failure narrative. So I think four months now we've got until the open. So it's a nice like chunky window. Um, every year we get certain things. Every you know the majority of years we get certain things. Like if you're coaching someone, what are you saying? okay, you can probably disregard most of this stuff and you should probably focus on most of this stuff. I mean, like, for example, it's always rower because they, they're they obviously they're confident that every gym will have or will have access to a rower, which now has to be a concept rower thanks to like two years ago or whatever. Um, there's usually like wall balls. There's usually thrusters. There's usually burpees. There's like some things have never come up and might never come up. So like in your professional opinion, what do you think people can disregard and what do you think people are like, you know, should really be thinking about? I mean, the, uh, yeah, you can, you can list out 20 movements and you can pretty much say like, yeah, probably going to see most of these movements and not see these other ones. But I think that, um, the nature of our sport is like the more variety you have for your training or even if you're not talking about it as a sport, it's just a, a methodology. If you want to do the best that you can in the open, I think it can be dangerous to, to really d- focus in on certain things and neglect other things. For example, they're going to have, they always have chest bar pull-ups, but they never have regular pull-ups because it's a lot harder to judge. But I think what most people should be doing is strict pull-ups, you know, and you should be building a base for some amount of time. And then closer to the open, you should be ramping up your volume of chest bar pull-ups, for example. So at our gym, We've just come off of a cycle, a strength cycle. And now in this next couple of months, we're, we're doing a lot of foundational gymnastics work. And because our gym, just generally, we know our people, they're not that good at gymnastics. So you can ask yourself if you're a, if you're a programmer, or you can ask you know, yourself the question about the population you're programming for. I would, I would, like, I would say that like, 
picking a period of time and building a base or stripping back some stuff. You don't need to snatch every week. You can do snatch drills that will help you in snatching. You don't need to PR your clean and jerk once a month. You know, you can, you can actually wait an, an entire year to test your clean and jerk PR. Go backwards and say, like, well, what's preventing me from getting the number that I want to get? And work on the drills that are very accessible and out there now because of how popular fitness has become. Uh, work on those things and dial those things in and put the pieces together and then wait for the, like, the full picture to come together at an open. You know, Ben Bergeron talks about this all the time. You should be spending 90% of your time practicing and training and reserve competition for 10%, you know, a small percentage of your year or whatever it is. And so if your competition is the open, you don't need to be worrying about be being top of the whiteboard in every single class all year round. You know, sometimes it's, it's worth it for you to step back and say, you know, I always struggle on the rower. So I could dog it on the road today because I know I'm going to crush these hundred pull-ups that are coming up. But what good is that going to do me? Then I'll just be getting better at the thing that I'm already amazing at. So instead, I'm going to push it on the row and I'm going to see how well I can do something that I'm good at when I'm a lot more tired after doing something that I'm not as good at. So those, just those types of questions, I think, are the ones that you should ask yourself personally or as a, 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 you know, if you're the person who programs for your gym or for a certain group of people. And, you know, it's, that's what, I mean, that's what the pros do. And so if I don't want to be a pro in the sport, but I do want to try to do the best I can in the open this year. So I'm working on the things that I'm not as good at now. And I'll kind of put those things together as it gets closer. Yeah. I like that. Um, okay. I'll finish with a quick fire, which sure. I, am, I imagine would be difficult for you because I feel like you, <laughs> oh, I can do it. I can do it. Just get in the zone. Um, okay. So ski or row. Row. Uh, snatch or clean? Snatch. Uh, coach or analyze? Coach. Uh, squat or bench? Neither. <laughs> <laughs> Literally the two things I'm worst at. <laughs> oh, they're so drastically different as well. I My bench is my squat. My, <laughs> like they're the same. Uh, front, front squat is, well, both my squats, my bench isn't that great. Both my squats are deplorably shit. So my uh, my front squat is really bad. But my back squat on my bench, sets of eight, sets of five, sets of three, they're all, it's always the same. And I now I'm at the point where I'm like, I think this is a psychological thing that like, maybe it's good. Maybe my bench is like way better than it should be because I'm forcing myself to bench when I can squat without thinking about it. Well, I think both are super valuable as a training implement. I think benching is largely underutilized in our sport. Um, Rich Froning has been benching every week since you know, 2005 or something. Hmm. So I like to bench more than I like to squat, but I'm not very good at either. Yeah. Um, favorite male athlete to watch? <clears throat> Got to go with Pat Vellner. Maybe it's just because I'm like uh, good friends with him, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, and favorite female to watch? Uh, I've always enjoyed watching Kristen Holta. Yeah. Yeah, that's just two two solid answers. They've both been on this as well. Very cool. Yeah. Well maybe they'll maybe they'll listen and they'll hear me say that. Who knows? Nobody listens. Oh. Oh, I'll well, text Pat. <laughs> I'll say, Pat, listen to this episode. If you don't listen to it, just scroll the minute, one hour and five minutes, or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'll see my my uh listen tally will just flick to one i'll be like oh he must have texted pat <laughs> um 
Well, listen, thanks a million. Um, I really enjoyed that. I think uh, there's a lot of... Uh, I think, apart from anything else, it's nice to hear an opinion that echoes your own, where you're kind of like, oh, I kind of thought that, but I didn't have the knowledge or intelligence to back up what I thought. So now I can actually say it to people what I thought. So that's great. I enjoyed that. I think you're probably pretty knowledgeable. Um, no, I'm really not. 